0: Want to turn with me to the Gospel of John? You'll find it in the beginnings of the New Testament, testimony of God the Son, Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His teachings, His power. And we are uh, joyful as a church to be in our seventy-third sermon in this series. Uh, as we now move into Chapter 18, um, we're in an exciting season as a church. As we're um, constructing a new campus north of here, and Uh, disciples are being made people are connecting Um, just uh, um, very thankful for the work that God is doing uh, in and through us and I've been praying a lot for today's sermon I'm very excited to bring it and uh, the work that he wants to do in each of us today as a result of it Um, will you join me in prayer as we jump in father we thank you for this time that you've given us to exalt your holy name to acknowledge the things that you've done to contemplate your power and your love and your grace and your wrath all the honor that you are due Lord we are surely guilty of making moments or many many parts of our week about us and not about you guilty of being overcome with worry in the midst of sovereign grip of our great God Uh, guilty of um, putting our hope into things that are fleeting Father love us enough to wreck the idols of our heart to uh, strengthen our grip on you alone, to trust in your holy word, to seek your face, and that we might serve you all of our days, that if you've brought people to this place today, both young and old, to, to hear the gospel and make it alive to them and make it good news to them, that you would um, bring new life from, from death due sin to life because of Christ. I'm thankful for the work you did in our first service and for all who have gathered here today for the second hour. And we just submit to you, all of us, that we'd be focused on you and your word and nothing else, and that you would move in each of us mightily this day for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. We, when it says, when Jesus has spoken these words, he's speaking, John is speaking of the things that Jesus got, just got done talking about. And for many chapters, that was his what we call his farewell discourse, uh, his encouragements, his teachings, his... his um, The things he wanted to impart to his disciples to get them ready for the season of ministry and launching the church that was to come as he parted um, by by death, resurrection, and ascension to go be with the Father and intercede on behalf of the church. And then in verse chapter 17, we read this glorious prayer between God the Son and God the Father. And and so much good stuff there. If you've missed these last four weeks as we delved into John 17, I'd encourage you to get on our podcast and get some time in the Word. There maybe is no more special place that we get to see the heart of God than in the prayer of Jesus to the Father in John 17. And now as we turn to 18, when Jesus had spoken these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. It's interesting that John, as he takes us in the Garden of Gethsemane, he he doesn't focus on much of the famous parts of what happened in the garden. He doesn't talk about Jesus taking Peter, James, and John aside to the deeper recesses and saying, "Pray, watch while I pray." John doesn't speak of him falling on his face in prayer and in true agony in his flesh, to the point of sweating blood crying out to God, the Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Speak of rebuking the disciples for their lack of staying awake to watch in this most important hour. Instead, what we're given is details, some of which are found in the other Gospels, synoptic Gospels, but but much of it not. And so with that, a wider scope of all the happenings of what happened in the garden. And remember that... John's emphasis, God's emphasis through John's writing of the gospel is the the deity of Jesus, that he is God. And so with that, a little less focused on the agony of Jesus' flesh and more to what must now be done. First, John mentions Jesus coming across the brook Hadron and he's accompanied by his disciples. Betrayal is in the wind. And what's amazing about this is Here's another Old Testament type that is strikingly fulfilled in Jesus once again. And, and what I mean by type is so much of the Old Testament is, and the happenings of the Old Testament are pointing to the promised one, pointing to Jesus as our ultimate hope and peace with God and atonement. We're desperate for Jesus. And so even as we go back, and, and just to give you a reminder of what happened, 2 Samuel 15, David, King David, at the time of this shameful betrayal, fought by a familiar, close friend, similar circumstance, crossing the same brook, crossing in tears, accompanied by his faithful followers, and the, just the, the type, the foreshadowing of what Jesus would now do in this hour before he's arrested and betrayed Praise God for his hand in little things to work out all things for his glory and our good. Amen? I mean, generations ago, these details that God is at work, God is not passive, he's not distracted, he's active, church, he's active, and he's worthy of our praise. Take notice that the disciples are with him. And what we're about to find out is that they weren't with him for protection. Like, hey, I'm I'm going into a shady time of the night now and I know some stuff's going on. I, I need you guys with me. He wants them not there, not for protection. He wants them there to witness his peaceful submission to the authorities who would arrest him Because it would set the table for them who would be many days arrested, beaten, and eventually killed for the testimony of the gospel that they were being sent out to proclaim. It's a huge point for us as well, because our highest aim is not safety. It's not exercising our own justice, but submitting to God's will and his work in our lives. If prevention and momentary justice is your great desire, then you will surely not enter into that trial or endure that trial the way the Lord desires often for the gospel to move in the way he intends for it to go out to others and to be sanctifying you. So let us be sure that we too are how in right view these things and the way that God is at work and the economy of the church and the testimony that he sent us to save the work he sent us to do that we would not satisfy our flesh by seeking teaching or pitchmen who want to tell us it's all going to be rosy and 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 prosperity and and no struggle and Let's just see the words of Jesus. Let's see the work of the early church. Let's let's submit ourselves to the holy word. Look with me now at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Take a moment and let's look at Judas and why he's come to betray his master. And and then we'll dig in the second part of this verse. Quickly and just to give some recap, Judas Iscariot, there's a couple other Judases in these times, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples who lived with, followed, walked with Jesus day and night for three years, saw him teach, saw his miracles, sat with him by the fire, spent time together, I mean, quality time, few people in your lifetime probably have you spent every day with for three solid years, I mean, talking about a very intimate, close relationship these guys had, with Christ. In John's gospel, we're given the divine plan of God to use Judas as a vessel of destruction to fulfill God's ultimate purposes. And part of that is that he would betray Jesus to sinful men who would have him killed and all that God intends for that to be for the elect in his glory, and while today I don't have time to recap all of those teachings if you go back into the last few weeks of our preaching through john we got we got to see the texts that are highlighting that, but I do want to highlight specifically the moment when Jesus did reveal that Judas was the betrayer quickly john thirteen twenty one through thirty after saying these things. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is just hours earlier from where we're at now in the garden. At the Last Supper, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke that someone would betray him. Verse 23 of John 13, one of his disciples, whom John loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, Jesus, of whom was he speaking? So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is whom I give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Judas is not truly believing in Jesus. He's not a true follower. He's still in his flesh. He's still bound in his sin. He's still... Um, serving his father, the devil. We even see their partnership highlighted here. He had a sinful love for money and his own glory. He was enslaved by it. In the end, he proved not to be one of Jesus' true disciples, but the epitome of a false disciple, one who looked to play the part, attended, participated, did all the action, but his heart was not broken with the gospel, was not made new, didn't die to self to live to Jesus. We know, according to Matthew's Gospel account, that Judas already had a plan in motion as he went to meet with the high priest. We see in Matthew 26 and in Luke 22 testimony about this meeting. I want to read you quickly the first three verses of Luke 22, verse 1-4, through 4, to shine some light on this. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. The chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death. So that for they fear the people, Jesus' crowds are growing, they want him out of the picture. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might be, betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And here we are. That's the garden. The garden is that place where the crowd was not. The garden was a special place to Jesus and the disciples as it meant it was a place for them to get out of the city to escape the crowds that were either following Jesus who were looking to get something from him or to see another miracle or those who were looking to stone or kill him or get him. It was a place of retreat, a place of solitude and rest. In some ways, we, you could almost see it as the disciples' clubhouse in the region. It's, it's where they gathered to, to get away from the crowd, to regroup, to be in prayer, Home away from home, which is fitting because Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head in this season of his life as a grown adult in his ministry years. He didn't. He didn't have a place at the end of the day. He said, "Hey guys, see you tomorrow," and he went in and kicked his feet up and read the local paper, and he they were on the road. it was it was ministry. It was it was witnessing. It was it was day. It was night, and so you can imagine in all of the movement and the here and the there. That there would be places like this that they would group up and where more intimate teaching could happen. And 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 so that was this place. And I find it very significant that this is where Judas would bring the official guard to betray him. Because it was this was their spot. It, No one else knew about it, but Judas knew. He knew where they would be. He knew where they had gathered many times. A place just for them to be with the Lord, to be together. And so I say that because I want you to really see the weight of the betrayal. Judas didn't just say, hey, give me some money, and I'll tell you where you can find him. I mean, that'd be significant in and of itself. He said, no, 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 I'll, I'll take you. To the spot. And there will be no crowds. They'll be there. And I'll make it real clear who it is. I'll even, you know, give them a kiss. Look with me at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers... And some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. First, consider the amount of soldiers Judas brought with him. And before I speak of the clarity the text gives us, I want you just to consider the way you've always pictured this scene. As you read the text, the the arrest of Jesus happened in the garden. Maybe the way you've seen it portrayed, the way you see this in your mind. Maybe there's a few you know, burly men, some big tough guys that, that they kind of gathered up in the night. Hey, we got to go get this guy. Hey, will you come with us? Grab your torches, grab some weapons. You know, you can, so you kind of picture this, you know, they, they got a, a number of guys to come, some officials to come with him. But see the details of this, and I pray it does for you what it does for me, and just worship God all the more. When it says having procured a band of soldiers, a band was one tenth of a legion, which means five hundred soldiers. Not fifty. We're talking eleven fishermen, and a rabbi not trained combatants, not 50, not 100, not not 100 trained militia, 500 trained armed servicemen. Now picture hundreds and hundreds professionally trained soldiers in the garden that night and, and recognize this. I mean, I don't know how you kind of picture it. Like, eventually they kind of are there. There's the light. And the, now we're kind of all together. 500 soldiers don't make their way to you without you knowing they're coming. Right? I mean, these guys would have heard. Would have known. They would have every opportunity to say, uh, yeah, time to bounce. Let's, we're out of here. Right? We know who we are. That doesn't sound healthy right but Jesus knew it was his time additionally there were officers it says from the chief priests and the Pharisees that these are essentially the temple police okay that also with strong authority training and power john also describes them coming with lanterns and torches which makes sense because it's night but also that they're wielding weapons. So so a couple of things to to really consider here. Um, It's one thing to see kind of a crowd of people coming your way with flashlights, right? It's another thing to see hundreds and hundreds with flaming torches and lanterns, all armed. Not, not with fists. They're armed. They have weapons. So a band 500 deep, trained soldiers, officers, official officers, would be more, extremely more than sufficient to take out a single guy and his 11 non-combat trained fishermen-like people. But this is God the Son, the Eternal and All-Powerful in every way, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Creator and Sustainer of the Universe and every detail it contains. The one who intimately and perfectly formed every one of those soldiers in their mother's womb and made their noses and their eyes and their hairline look the way it does. The one who has numbered their days, who is literally at that moment holding all things together, including the atoms and nerves that allow them to grip the torch or the sword. What I want you to see or put away in this scene on this night is Jesus as a victim. I want you to see God at work in the most amazing way in these details. Now what's phenomenal about that understanding, which the text is going to unfold in a moment, at the same time, church, he is the Lamb of God. The promised one, the Messiah, the one who came to lay down his life for me. And he's not going to defend himself or fight these guys. They couldn't take into custody a more willing person in all of history. Praise God for his sovereign hand to patiently wait all those generations and all those years to get to this moment where Christ would hand himself over to lawless, sinful men who in their self-serving flesh will murder him to rid themselves of what still today is the most innocent, perfect man to ever walk the face of the earth. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Just read that verse again for a moment and tell me if you don't see the irony of those words. Knowing all that would happen to him, he asked, whom do you seek? He doesn't need to ask. He knows all that is going to happen to him, right? So he's not inquiring for gained knowledge. He has a purpose in what they're going to say. He's trying to draw something out. We're going to see that in a moment. But will you consider with me for a moment a verse out of Psalm 46, which we'll close our service by singing. Psalm forty six ten declare declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. He declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, from eternity past things which have not yet been done, saying, My purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Beloved, this is God in flesh. He knows all things. He's in control over everything. He knows what's going to happen, but he sets the table by asking them to reveal the one whom they seek. The one who they've gathered, such a crazy big army, to come and get, he doesn't even know who they're looking for. He knows. But he wants them to reveal whom they're against. Whom they've come to make war with. And they say, verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And notice John's commentary here in verse 5. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. A couple of things to gather here. First, let me let's deal with Judas' presence. Consider the fact that for the first time since it being unveiled to the disciples that he is the betrayer, here is Judas, one of theirs, by all of their view and understanding for the last three years, the intimate crew of twelve standing with the enemy, who's come against them armed to the hilt. You've got to understand that, I mean, if if they were frustrated by the news of this when they heard it, it's really sinking in now. Do you get that? Like, okay, some of you have a favorite team and you have that one player that plays for that favorite team and it just hurts to see that player at the end of their career wear an opposing jersey, especially if it's like the enemy team. Like, you're just kind of dumped out. Like, I can't even look. It's so... That pales in comparison to this. He's with them, that armed militia, 500 deep, come against us and the master. And and so let's just pause there for a second. Some of you really relate to that feeling and that experience of being betrayed by someone you love care for it deeply, have done life with. The definition for betrayal is to be unfaithful, to deliver to or side with an enemy, to violate trust or confidence once held between two parties. One of the most common phrases we use to talk about being betrayed is you get stabbed in the back. And it's kind of fun sometimes in life to slow down and really think about where did that come from? And it comes from the simple understanding that you don't turn your back on your enemies. You you keep an eye on them. Why? Because at any moment they could come against you. You'd be foolish to turn your back on them and give them easy access to hurt you. You don't trust them. But someone you're loyal or close with, someone you trust, you you let them near. You trust them. That's That's what the other phrase, I got your back, means. You can trust me. We're good. Close. And so it hurts. It's, It's hard to be stabbed in the back. When they come against you, someone you trusted, it's like you got stabbed in the back. They came at you. in almost now 20 years of pastoral ministry and many, many hours of counseling and and just walking with the flock, I I know that some of the deepest wounds that many of you have carried or maybe still are hurting through are related to betrayal. And I want to come back to some of the application of this at the end of the sermon because it's really important we process it rightly. Rightly. But what these guys are experiencing in this moment, in his presence, I mean, that emphasis of John is not a throwaway. It's it's meant to really bring to the point. He, there he is, standing with them. The other thing I want you to see in this verse that's really key is Jesus' answer, when he says, I am he in our English translation, really more literally reads I am. He it, It's understood that there, there's an emphasis here In him declaring, we've seen him already do throughout the testimony of John's gospel, declare this name of God, Yahweh, I am. And to bring this emphasis of his deity is, again, the constant focus of John to make sure that it's understood that Jesus is God the Son. And so, look at now how powerful it is in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, picture it. You're not talking about 30, 40 people stepped back and tripped. All of them. 500 plus trained, combat ready soldiers at that pronouncement that it is Him and that He is I am, fell down. This is the power of God on display. John's always highlighting the deity of Christ, and Jesus gives this this this, this emphasis here, and is declaring His duty, declaring it is Him. All authorities and powers even though they're against him, literally fall backwards at the power of his name. They're armed to the teeth and ready for war and he simply speaks a simple response in his name and they collapse. It is so important that you don't see Jesus as a victim here. He is in complete control over them. One word is enough he is the one of whom Isaiah says in Isaiah 4, 11, 4, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Paul says of him, he will slay the lawless with the breath of his mouth. He is the one coming out of heaven in his return with a mouth, within his mouth, a sword so sharp, a sword of execution and judgment. There is power in the words of Jesus. He created with the word. And he can destroy with a word. He spoke and creation came into existence. He he can speak and it can go out of existence. And while it's in existence, he controls it. Whatever he says, this armed militia fall at his feet at a word. Wow. Look at verse 7. And so he asked them again, uh, Whom do you seek? They, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. As they're, as they're picking themselves up off the ground. Yeah, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered again, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So they're picking themselves off the ground. Jesus asks them the same question again. He answers back the same way. I told you that I'm he, I am. Why does he do this? He's highlighting the fact that the arrest warrant they have is for him and not his crew. I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. In other words, you have no official warrant to arrest my disciples. The name on your arrest warrant is Jesus of Nazareth. That's me, I am. And so he's got them to repeat their orders twice. They have declared that they have no right to lay their hands on the disciples. And why is that an issue? Why is that a clarity he wants to draw out? And verse 9 explains that this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken back in chapter 17, 12, and even before. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Jesus is protecting them out of that deep love he has for his people, for his flock. And why? Why protect them in that moment? Because they were not ready to face the persecution that he was about to go through. He had to take up his cross before they could take up theirs. Please see that. If left to themselves, the disciples would have not obeyed the, the will of God. They weren't ready to, they revealed that they would have fought. Uh, Peter's about to go all Chuck Norris on a guy, or that they would have ran and hid and or even denied knowing Jesus. That's what they were capable of doing in this time. Jesus knows they're not ready, so he protects them so he can endure them to the finish because he will lose none of those that the Father's given him. Without Jesus' victory on the cross and resurrection, they would not walk by faith and not by sight. They were still going to have a fleshly response to the opposition, and we're going to see that unfold. They needed to see their bloodied champion after the grave to then go fulfill all that God had for them to live for their faith, to walk by faith and not by sight, to be beaten, to be arrested, to be killed for their faith, and to stand fast. Instead of operating their flesh, it would be like, don't even know the guy. Like, Keep moving, man. She's not the one you're, at, you're looking for. I'm, I'm over here. I, I don't want that. So he protects them from the arrest and the persecution. So to fulfill scripture, they will lose none of his. Can I just highlight that we, the church, now have the bloody champion in victory in view? We have the rest of the testimony and the further teachings of the rest of the New Testament by God's grace. We are equipped to walk by faith and not by sight. May we respond to obey God's will in our lives and not satisfy the fleshly desires. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, probably more like a dagger, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So here's Peter being Peter. Peter is so good at just jumping in. What Peter should have done in hearing what Jesus just said, that, hey, you can't, you're not here to arrest those guys. He should have been like, wow, thank you, Lord. But no, he takes out his sword, his dagger, he swings it at the head of Malchus, and thankfully the worst thing that came out of this is, now Malchus, Malchus looks like Evander Holyfield as he just loses part of one of his ear. I mean, an untrained guy wielding a sharp sword towards another guy's head. I mean, that just go bad a whole lot of ways. I mean, this guy really could have died. Artery, dead, eyeball. I mean, just a little ear, really, by the grace of God. I mean, you still live in the covenant that says you murder another, then you die too. It is the grace of God that he only lopped off his ear. Before you and I get too critical of Peter with our hindsight view of how this happened, now looking back, we have to see how much we relate to Peter here. Jesus has made it clear to the disciples again and again I have you, you're in my grip, I got you, love you, don't worry, trust me, walk by faith. We have the same promises. And yet, even though we know we're in a sovereign grip, how often do we respond to situations by pulling out our sword and just cutting our way through it? Or or being overwhelmed with worry and fret and fear and walking by flesh and, and not by faith? Beloved, we the redeemed, Don't hack and scream and fight our way through life in this world. Again, this is back to why the disciples are there. They needed to see how he was going to fulfill the Father's plan for them. And some of you need to hear this this morning because you are stuck in worry. You are broke down the side of the road or you are pursuing your days lately with a fury of slashing and cutting, to try to make it right or make it work for you. And you're trying to do that in your own power. You're trying to resolve the situation and what you can do. And I just pray you would hear, Jesus, I got you to the end. I love you. I have you. A quick side note on the telling of this situation. It's spoken of in all four Gospels. The fact that one of the disciples lops off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. But only John names both of them, and only Luke talks about the fact that Jesus reaches over and heals the guy's ear. Luke, the physician. I think it's super cool how God ordained the uniqueness of who these guys were to help bring out different emphasis that he wanted us to have. Don't see the fact that some of these include details and others don't, and it feels like it's all shady. It's not. It's the work of God to give us different testimony of the same things that happened, with different perspectives to help us have a wider view of the whole thing. you cherish the written word of God as much as you should I, I pray it's not just on the shelf six days a week and you dust it off for a Sunday church I, I, I pray you would maybe be gutsy enough to cancel your cable or do whatever it might take just to get in the word of God way more than you do because within it is life and an understanding of, of God and what he has for us and our purpose for our days Without it, we're like soldiers who grow tired of training and we've become b- battalion ping pong champions within our unit. And who cares that you were the best for three years in a row at ping pong? You're a soldier trained to fight. So let us stay focused. On, on the right things, and have some real aim and really passion to be passionate about the word of God. I pray you would be. Look at verse eleven, John eighteen eleven. So Jesus said to Peter, "Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?" Peter has to be stopped here. can't just go tearing through this crowd. Why? Why does Peter have to be stopped? Because Jesus must be arrested and must die. That's what he's saying to Peter right here. Put it away. Or you try, you effort to prevent me from doing the thing I came here to do, which is to drink this cup that the Father has given me to drink on your behalf again another reference as we see throughout the scriptures the cup of wrath the wrath that Jesus must drink he must take on our deserved wrath do our sin to pay for it to satisfy the justice of God satisfy the wrath of God that is right and good about who he is and his holiness It's fitting that Peter is the one who pulls out his dagger and tries to get all crazy, because he's constantly the one struggling with this. If you remember, I'll give you one testimony of this. Matthew sixteen twenty-one through 23 From this time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus for saying this. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you, he said. But he turned, Jesus turned to him and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here was the teaching back then of it's not about you and I just making it through and continuing to enjoy life and our band of brothers and growing old together and these things that the world cherishes and clings to because it has nothing else to cling to. Get get your mind on the things above. Get your mind on the kingdom, on the will of God for kingdom stuff. You're acting like Satan to prevent the very holy will of God who wants this to not happen. It must happen. I must die. I must drink that cup of wrath. So here here he is again, wielding his sword, trying to slow it down, trying to stop it, trying to defend Jesus. His flesh, and in his flesh, that makes perfect sense. Jesus must do what he came to do, to die in our place, to drink the cup of wrath so that we don't have to. Church, Jesus is not a victim. He is the victor. Amen? That's his role, to claim victory over sin on our behalf by laying down his life for the sheep. The shepherd becomes a sheep by laying down his life to be consumed so the sheep can have life. The the gospel... the is the good news of the grace and the power of God to redeem undeserving sinners, to redeem us to eternal life through Jesus' perfect, sinless life, his substitutional, sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection from the grave. We sinners are saved by grace, the grace of God through faith, not by works in Jesus alone, not by anything added. We're saved from the eternal wrath of God that we deserved and are reconciled to an eternally secure relationship with God. Amen? That's the gospel. Praise God He took our place. Praise God He went willingly for without this, we have no hope. We have no redemption. <sighs> Next week, we will read about the fact that they bound Jesus and took him away to be tried, a bunch of shady trials in the middle of the night because they're going to lie about him and they're going to try to figure out how to manipulate this thing. The disciples are all going to flee and hide. Some of them are going to come back around in different moments. We're going to get into that. But I want to finish today's sermon by highlighting what happened to Judas as this is the last time we're going to see him in this gospel. So either turn with me or look to the screen at Matthew 27, 1 through 5. The rest has happened. When morning came, All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. I know that many of you have been seriously and deeply betrayed in this life. But I want to talk to those of you in the room today who realize that you're the betrayer? And like the betrayed carry hurt, you carry your own hurt, your own shame, your own regret and guilt as a result of your unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness can show itself in a number of ways, and we could spend a lot of time getting into examples. A few of the big ones cheat on a spouse, sell out a co worker for your own gain, disobey your parents, doing something behind their backs you're told not to, give yourself to addiction instead of parenting your kids. I mean, these are big betrayals that are extremely painful and hard, they affect lives and generations. But, but what about consider with me for a moment the, the more like subtle betrayals that creep and, and, and exist? What about the betrayal of silence? like in a marriage or in a, a, a close relationship where you you know there's a problem and, and, and you betray that relationship by just being quiet. You know that the relationship is bleeding out, but you do nothing to bring about healing or redemption or help fix it. You just shut up. And you betray that relationship with your silence by removing yourself. I've said for a lot of years, just the way I've understood the way I'm wired, there's a lot of things I believe that people could do to me that I can see myself overcoming. One of the things I, I, I consider that I would struggle with more is someone who's really close to me who knew there was a problem and they just kept their mouth shut and just watched it bleed out until it was too late. And the depth of the hurt that would kind of come in that. So again, that's not like this, this big grand thing. It's, it's just silence. Or, or, or what about the betrayal of, of laziness? And you just selfishly continue to find ways to not do what you know you're supposed to do. To serve yourself. To to just do enough to kind of get by. But you're not investing. You're not sacrificial. You're betraying the relationship or, or that situation by just finding a way just to be lazy. And there's so many other ways we could really dig dig into how we are betraying or the betrayer. Some of you might still be sitting here going, man, I just, I've really not done such a thing to someone I love. I'm a faithful person. And, man, if that's true, I would say praise God. But on the flip side, I would say, what about what you do to a holy God every time you sin and satisfy the flesh instead of honor Him? Are you not the betrayer in that moment. Uh, uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have to see the scriptures reveal, the law reveals that we all are betrayers. We're the worst kind. For in our sin, we've betrayed perfection, do nothing but worship. And we made it about us. Betrayal of God's deserved glory. And it really is the crux of our lostness and our sin and our deserved death. But here's the reality. When there's a burden, when when there's a weight, a regret, a remorse that you have betrayed another and you're trying to carry that with you, trying to deal with that, so let's just really get pragmatic for a minute. How do you deal with that deep gut hurt of the remorse you feel for the betrayal you have caused? You have to see that Judas felt bad, but he didn't have repentance. He confessed what he did was wrong, but confession without repentance is insufficient. He feels bad, but he doesn't change. In the coming weeks, we're going to be introduced to the betrayal of Peter. I would actually regard it to be a more significant betrayal than what Judas did. He he goes so far to say, to protect his own hide, I don't even know that guy. His best friend, the guy he said he would die for. That, that'd be like Jennifer not not only like just find a way to cheat on me, but to, to, it would get so dark. It would get so bad that she'd be like, I don't even know who you're talking about. And that I would know that. I would know the depth of betrayal goes that far would be overwhelming. But Peter saw it and wept bitterly, the scriptures say. He was devastated by his betrayal. Felt horrific, but he didn't leave it there. He pursued Christ. He couldn't wait to see Jesus to say, I'm sorry, I'm yours. To take up a new course in his life and be restored unto what God has for him. He too had remorse and regret But he didn't stop there. He repented. He turned, took up a new course in light of the gospel. A repentant heart is sorry for its error, but it doesn't get swallowed by it. It pursues a different path, it takes up a new beginning. True repentance is surrender, it is taking up a new beginning. It's the good news of the gospel, church, that if Christ is in you, you have the power to take up a new beginning. You're not defined by that thing. It doesn't need to swallow you and condemn you. You're reborn. You're given the power of God to take up a new course, to repent. True gospel repentance is huge. And it's and, and we must see how desperate for Christ we are in his grace. In the death of Jesus, to even have the motivation or the the way to repent. Some of you remain stuck in a way you shouldn't be. You're claiming Christ. And you hate the sin, but you also hate yourself. And that can't be. You need to see yourself the way God sees you through Christ. And take up that new beginning. And take up that new that new road of repentance, and not let that sin be your demise and keep you in the pit. Not dealing with your remorse is a serious thing. I've seen it derail people in the worst way. I've seen it tear apart marriages. I've seen it cause parents to literally walk out on their kids, be done. I've seen it lead lead to heavy abuses. I've seen it cause people to leave the church. And and it can and it does lead to suicide. The the most selfish, self-serving thing you could do to believe the lie that somehow this is the better out and it will be good for everyone else. The worst thing, the most devastating thing for all that God's put in your life to commit suicide and just wreak devastation on everyone else. So selfish. And that's what Judas' remorse led to. He He was enslaved in his sin. Rather than Judas saying, I'm sorry, and doing something about it, he made a noose. Rather than making it right and repenting unto a new beginning, he made it end. He put a noose around his neck, he jumped off a tree branch, and it says in Acts that his guts burst out of his body. And it's a gory picture because it's meant to show the depth of the depravity of our enslavement to sin in contrast to what we have in the gospel. So if you're in Christ, that's don't you don't let it go there. You don't let it stay there. You you forgive, you claim the power of God and what he's given you, and you apply it. You bring your regret to God, and you allow the grace of God to wash over you and pick you up and begin a new course and to honor him. To hear the gospel and let it change you at your core and give you new birth. To apply the gospel to your life. Years ago, I read a, a an artistic portrayal of Judas' journey in these hours and Jesus' journey in these hours and some of the similarity and yet vast differences. Hear it. It's artistic, so give it some grace. While Jesus is climbing up the hill of Calvary, Judas is climbing up another hill, a hill of deep regret. He walked it alone, its trail strewn with shame and hurt. Its landscape was barren as his soul. Thorns of remorse tore at his ankles and his calves. The lips that had kissed the king were cracked, cracked with grief. And on his shoulders, he bore a burden that Boat is back in his own failure. Like Judas, we can, we too can trudge up that hill, weary, wounded hearts wrestling with unresolved mistakes, sighs of anxiety, tears of frustration, words of rationalization, and moans of doubt. For some of us, the pain is just on the surface. For others, it's deeply submerged, buried. In a rarely touched substrata of bad memories, we walk silently, single file, with leg irons of guilt. And Paul said it so well when he posed the question, who will rescue me from this body of death? At the trail's end are two trees. One is weathered and leafless. It's dead but still sturdy. Its bark is gone, leaving it smooth, wood bleached white by the years. Twigs and buds no longer sprout, only bare branches fork from the trunk. And on the strongest of these branches is tied a hangman noose. It was how Judas dealt with his failure. If only Judas had looked at that adjacent tree, it also dead, its wood is also smooth. has no noose tied to its crossbeam. No more death on that tree. Once was enough. Not far from the tree of despair stands the tree of hope. Life so paradoxically close with death. Goodness within arm's reach of darkness. A hangman noose and a life preserver swinging in the same shadow. But here they stand. One can't help but be stunned by the inconceivability of it all. Why does Jesus stand on life's most barren hill with outstretched, nail-pierced hands? Amazing grace it has been called a type of grace that doesn't hold up to logic. But then I guess grace doesn't have to make sense. If it did, it wouldn't be grace. I have good news for you today. If you have betrayed another or been deeply betrayed, the gospel is your hope and your new beginning. If you've been betrayed, Jesus knows he gets what that is. And he died for you to have the power to forgive it so you can heal from it and no longer be defined by it. That it would no longer define who you are, it just be part of where you've been, it just be part of your history. But you're on a new path, a new identity in Christ. And if you're the betrayer, if, if you have deeply betrayed another, to know that you are forgiven and you are made new in Christ and you too have a new identity and opportunity to shine bright His gospel and His good news. Know that the hurt you feel, the pain you feel, that angst you feel is not your end. Jesus has the final say on how we, the church, process these hurts, restore broken relationships, how we move forward in our identity. This dark night in the garden was not his end, nor is it ours in Christ. We have hope in Christ and grow in the gospel. Church, see this morning Jesus not as a victim See yourself no longer as a victim, but as victorious in the power of your victor, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Christian, don't settle for being a victim. Don't let it define you any longer. Don't wade through it anymore. Know who you are in Christ, victorious begin that process of healing and forgiveness and that you are raised to walk in the newness of life. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word and and the insight that we get from it, the way it continues to grow and mature and sanctify us and stretch us and challenge us and undo us. Today, very likely, Some very real, very practical things have come up that you've blessed us to identify that we could really lean into you in prayer, in your word, in the fellowship of the body of Christ to really make war with, to forgive, to heal, to truly repent from and not just confess, but to turn from it take up a new course in light of the gospel. One that wouldn't be our end like Judas, but be our beginning like Peter and all that you had in front of him for your glory and your purposes. Lord, that we'd worship you as victorious as God, but you also get it. You, Jesus in his flesh has been there. He's wrestled, he's hurt, he's agonized over it. And so we just come just thankful for all that you are and all that you're doing. And we just cry out that in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the the raging fire, in the midst of just heartache, you are able, more than able, we cling to you. We worship you. Hear us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship you.